there's a lot of news this week. This just in, the birth announcement we've all been waiting for. Congratulations to Rihanna and ASAP Rocky. Rihanna gave birth to the couple's first baby, a baby boy. So we're going to start with some questions. There's been no big reveal yet, so we don't know if the baby looks more like mommy or daddy. But I wonder what will come first. The photo of the baby or the inevitable Fenty baby line? And speaking of reveals, is Dumois as interesting now that we know who's behind it? And is it ever okay to drop revealing gossip on somebody who basically drops gossip for a living? If you don't know, Dumois is this really popular anonymous Instagram page. Well, it's not so anonymous anymore. It was revealed by an online writer in a very highly researched substack that the page is allegedly run by someone named Melissa Lavalo. She started it with Maggie Kempner, who's the granddaughter of some New York socialite. There is a Dumois book coming out a little bit later this year if you're curious about it. But honestly, the whole thing's a little too Gossip Girl for me. Hey, maybe Netflix can make a series about them. They need something to bring them back. Because last week, Netflix laid off 150 employees, many of whom were from projects that targeted marginalized people like Strong Black Lead and the LGBTQ-focused vertical Most. Now, this is just the latest in a string of bad news for Netflix. Subscribers are down, and this isn't their first round of layoffs. We did a whole episode about how the streaming giant has fallen off, but it's unclear why they think cutting the diversity will somehow bring back the subscribers. Sticking with television, This Is Us says farewell tonight. After six seasons, the show is ending. If you step back, you'll see that the end is not sad. It's just the start of the next incredibly beautiful thing. And I have two questions. What are we all going to collectively watch and cry about now? And are we going to get that Beth and Randall spinoff? I need that. Over on FX, Atlanta wrapped up its third season last week. If you are here, it is because I know you appreciate and revere life's most beautiful experiences. You will not be disappointed. Bon appétit. (laughs) The next season, season four, will be the show's last. I'm sure fans are very relieved to know that that's already been taped. There was a four-year gap between season two and season three. And I don't think that gap benefited Atlanta. This past season was critically acclaimed, but I'm not sure it resonated with its original fan base. Especially since I see a new person asking every week, what the hell happened to Atlanta? Maybe the show has changed, or maybe we've changed after four years in a pandemic. It'll be interesting to see how people react to season four. That's premiering later this year. And finally, our last big question of the day is about a video from Lori Harvey that's been making the internet rounds. Everybody's been asking, like, what it is I specifically did to get my body to this point. So when Mike and I got together, I gained, like, 15 pounds of relationship weight, and it was horrible. If you don't know, Lori Harvey is a model and socialite. She's Steve Harvey's stepdaughter, and the Mike she's referring to is actor Michael B. Jordan. When I was trying to drop weight, I was working out, like, five, six times a week, and I would even do, like, for the first month and a half, I think I did two-a-days. So what I would do was, I was in a calorie deficit. I think I maybe was consuming like 1,200 calories in a day max. And I wasn't on like a specific eating regimen. I just was trying to do like meat and veggies and like minimal carbs. The backlash of this video was swift. 
although Harvey said she was asked by people to share this information, a lot of folks felt it was irresponsible because her diet and exercise plan is really unhealthy. First of all, she shared that she's eating like 1,200 calorie diet. So to be at a calorie deficit, a calorie deficit means that you're eating less calories than your body needs um, to maintain a certain weight or a certain um, status of health. Patience Owane is a registered dietitian who works with people with eating disorders and disordered eating patterns. She's one of the few dietitians who focuses specifically on disordered eating patterns amongst Black Americans. We don't know what her starting point is. So let's say her caloric needs, and this is just a ballpark. Let's just use the standard American diet that the USDA has set, 2,000 calories. If she was supposed to be eating 2,000 calories a day, I think that's 800 calories that she's missing from her diet a day. Somebody viewing this might have a calorie need that's 3,000 calories, 4,000 calories, and then trying to do a 1,200-calorie deficit. That is very, very egregious. When you have to do things that are very aggressive to become a certain weight or maintain a certain weight, that means that's probably not the weight you're supposed to be at to be healthy. A lot of people came to Harvey's defense by pointing out that she isn't the first or only person to go to these kinds of measures to lose weight. If you log on to TikTok right now, there are pages and pages of videos offering this same advice. And there's also a lot of videos that will tell you to ignore all of this and embrace your body as is. I don't know if we've ever gotten this many mixed messages about our bodies and the way we look. We have the body positivity movement that tells us to look in the mirror and love ourselves. And that's been somewhat hijacked by people with basically conventionally acceptable bodies. And of course, there's still a relentless parade of images that tell us that being thin and fit is the beauty ideal. It makes a lot of sense that so many people are falling for unrealistic and sometimes dangerous diet and fitness plans. Welcome to Pop Cultured. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, a conversation about online diet culture and how it's bolstered by fat phobia. And just a heads up, we will be talking about eating disorders. Lori Harvey is hardly alone. Just a few weeks ago, Kim Kardashian shared that she lost 16 pounds in three weeks to fit into the Marilyn Monroe dress she wore to the Met Gala. Even Beyonce has talked openly about the extreme measures she's taken to shed pounds throughout her career. For the homecoming Coachella performance, she lost a ton of weight by cutting bread, carbs, sugar, meat, dairy, fish, and alcohol. Pretty much everything good. Of course, she did this to perform in one of the best shows of her career, of the decade, really. But even Beyonce admitted it was too far. I definitely pushed myself further than I knew I could. And I learned a very valuable lesson. I will never, <laughs> never push myself that far again. <laughs> and for celebrities, especially women who don't fit conventional beauty ideals, the internet and media can be really toxic. Bridgerton actress Nicola Coughlin has literally begged people to stop sharing their opinions on her weight with her. Just the other day, conservative writer and all-around asshole Jordan Peterson thought it was okay to fat shame one of the models on the latest Sports Illustrated cover. Every time Lizzo steps out or posts a picture on Instagram, some hater in the comments has something awful to say about her size. And because Lizzo has the nerve to wear what she wants, which is sometimes nothing at all, 
She's become somewhat of a goddess in the body positivity movement, whether she wants the title or not. Here she is talking to Trevor Noah back in 2019. I had a song called I'm In Love With Myself, and I put that out in, like, 2015, and I was performing it on stage, and it would shock people. They would be like, oh, my God, how, how dare she? Or, wow, she's so brave. Or is she, is she serious? Does she really love herself? And I think that it's so interesting that now body positivity is, like, this buzzing term. There's no term for body negativity because it's the norm. It's what we expect. So... At this point, I realized that my mere existence is a form of activism, especially in the body positive community. But I, I'm nobody's celebrity totem. There's, you can't make an example out of me. I'm literally here making music so I can live a more positive, healthier, happier life. For Lizzo, being the face of body positivity has been complicated. Remember when she told people on Instagram that she was doing a 10-day detox cleanse? Some of her fans immediately called her out for what they saw as an embrace of toxic diet culture. Lizzo later said that she was doing the cleanse for health, not weight loss purposes, but the damage had already been done. Of course, Lizzo and her supporters pointed out that she has the right to do what she wants with her body without judgment. But because Lizzo makes positive music about herself, people expect her to be the perfect poster child for so-called body positivity. But remaining positive in a world that can be really unkind to people in bigger bodies can be hard. Lizzo again. I came home and I took my clothes off to take a shower. And I just started having all of these really negative thoughts about myself. Like, you know, what's wrong with me? Maybe everything, all the mean things people say about me are true. And, you know, why am I so disgusting? And hating my body. And um, normally I would have some positive thing to say to get me out of this, but I don't. And that's okay too. The body positivity movement teaches us to look in the mirror and feel great about ourselves all the time. But that's just not realistic. How we feel about our bodies can change from year to year and sometimes day to day. Patience again. Now we have body positivity, body acceptance, body neutrality, because body positivity for some is not accessible because not everybody is in a place where they can truly say that they love their body, but you can be in a place where you can accept your body. It's like a spectrum and getting to body positivity is obviously not going to happen overnight. Maybe body positivity will never happen for some and it doesn't have to be the goal at least, but being able to be comfortable in your body, I think is the number one goal. The struggle to feel good or at least comfortable in your own body isn't something that's exclusive to celebrities. Whether you're Lizzo, Lori Harvey, or an Instagram user with 200 followers, we're all susceptible to the dangers of diet culture. And for a lot of us regular folks who don't have access to nutritionists or trainers, it can be really hard to navigate. The internet is full of advice on how to lose weight quickly, get a flat stomach, cut fat, build muscle, and lots of other weight-related buzz terms. Do you want to get a flat stomach fast? Try this every morning. Five ways to get a six-pack in two weeks. Do you want a more shapely butt fast? It's so easy. But experts like patients say the problem with a lot of that advice is it doesn't really work, especially in the long term. Diets are not sustainable, to say like the very least. It promotes more overeating because when you're restricting yourself and over-exercising your bodies and starving, you're manipulating your metabolism in a way that encourages your body to continue to conserve energy. 
Patients told me that when we do extreme diets or start limiting entire food groups, it can send our bodies the wrong message that can make it easier to gain weight and harder to lose it whenever we do quit the diet. And dieting isn't just bad because it's ineffective. It can also be dangerous. Most people have heard of eating disorders like anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating. Those are disorders that have certain specific criteria that have to be met for diagnosis. Something that's far less talked about, disordered eating. Disordered eating is an umbrella term for things like chronic emotional eating or like chronic dieting or just not having like a super healthy relationship with food. And it's kind of the gray area. People that don't have like a healthy relationship with food, but they also don't have an eating disorder. But because disorder eating doesn't always check certain boxes, manifest in the same way, or have the same results on people, it can be hard to spot even within yourself. It's not always just being like super thin. You can be obese and still have identical symptoms as anorexia. I have patients that are like that, but they wouldn't be diagnosed with anorexia because the criteria for that is a weight, is like specific weight percentile of your BMI or ideal body weight. And it's not just about our relationship with food. Fitness and exercise can play a role in disordered eating habits. Patients pointed out to me that people generally recognize that throwing up after eating, which is called purging, is pretty clearly a disordered eating trait. You could eat something and then go to the gym and work it off. That's also called purging. But one is more socially acceptable than the other. If you cannot tolerate eating food without exercising to feel like you deserve to eat, that is 100% disordered. If I'm having a sad day and I and I get a Trace Lake Chase cake from Whole Foods, that's like my jam. Oh, that's so like indulgent. But if I conversely had a stressful day and ran 10 miles, people would be like, oh, that's great. And to be clear, patience isn't bashing exercise. She says exercise is great and has all kinds of benefits for our mental and physical health. But it's about the balance, not because, oh, I ate cake today, so I need to burn this off or calories in, calories out. And if I don't run 10 miles and I can't have Thanksgiving dinner, stuff like that, it's obsessive and it's disordered. And it's just because of fat phobia. Fat phobia is the stigma or bias people have against folks who are perceived as overweight. It's what pushes some people to go on extreme diets and others to make comments about people's size. It's the fuel diet culture needs to thrive. Because of fat phobia, we're uncomfortable with seeing people live in bigger bodies. And we ask people in bigger bodies to slim down for our own comfort. Instead of accepting your body for what it is and how it's genetically supposed to be, you're literally starving it down to a very unhealthy, unsustainable weight. And this, in the end, promotes overeating and eating disorders and disordered eating patterns. And it just is like Pandora's box. We all, for some reason, feel like we have to be the same size. For some reason? No. I think we all know where this comes from. It's complicated and it starts really early. It starts from the day you're socialized. Even the cartoons are like Barbie dolls. Barbie or body proportions were unrealistic. And, you know, girls wanting to look like Barbies or dolls. I'm sure you hear it on social media. People are still hashtag Barbie, whatever. For a lot of us millennials who grew up in America, it wasn't just Barbie. We got messages really early that beautiful, desirable, good people were thin. And that at worst, fat people were villains to be feared and at best, dumb and harmless. Take Disney movies. 
Nowadays, they're a lot better about body representation. But think about the Disney movies of old, or even the ones of our youth. Disney princesses were always thin, and when fat characters did show up, they were villains like the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland or Ursula from The Little Mermaid. In my day, we had fantastical feasts when I lived in the palace. Now these days, Ursula's gotten a bit of a character rebrand. But growing up, think about it. Did you want to be Ursula or the Little Mermaid? When the fat character isn't a villain, they're portrayed as dumb or matronly like Gus Gus and Cinderella or Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast. Disney, of course, isn't the only culprit. In Shrek, when Fiona became an ogre, she was transformed from being a thin white woman to a stout green woman. Every night I become this. This horrible, ugly beast. She could have been a skinny ogre or a stout princess. What's up with that? And of course, it's not just cartoons. If you grew up in the 90s or 2000s, you couldn't walk into the grocery store without getting fat shamed by a magazine. Magazines like Seventeen that always had images on the cover of thin celebrities and some headline touting the benefits of whatever new fad diet was in. Remember when people fat shamed Jessica Simpson for not maintaining the same exact weight over the course of a decade? And now that we've all grown up and live in a social media era, Instagram and TikTok have taken the place of Disney and Seventeen magazine. Of course, we still have movies, television, magazines, and family members to reinforce negative ideas about our bodies. But Instagram and TikTok are an unchecked treasure trove of bad dieting and exercise tips. I don't know if you've seen the V-Shred ads. They're very compelling. I'm going to make it easy for you to shred tons of fat and have a lot of fun doing it all from your own home by fixing your three fat loss hormones that control your metabolism so you can start burning fat 24-7. And some people sound extremely smart, but there's like these little holes in their logic that kind of unravel everything that they're talking about. If you spend any time on Instagram, especially if you follow fitness influencers, you may have come across these ads. V-Shred is a fitness program started by this guy, Vince Sant, who claims to be a fitness model and trainer. You can purchase videos, meal plans, programs, and supplements that range from $20 to nearly $200. There are a lot of people on the internet who say V-Shred is a scam that's based on junk science. I mean, when you search V-Shred on YouTube, there are so many videos that come up that are basically people debunking a lot of the V-Shred claims about exercise and body types. Now, of course, some of those people are trying to push their own workout regimens, but the point is, a lot of people do not buy this whole V-Shred thing. But still, V-Shred has over a million followers on Instagram, and their ads float across timelines daily. In trying to find out more about V-Shred, I found myself on their website. The first thing I saw was a survey that asked me all kinds of questions about myself, like my age, my height, my weight, those sort of things. Then it came to a screen that essentially asked me to choose my problem. Did I have a little or a lot of weight to lose? Or maybe I was, quote, too skinny. There was no option for, I like the way I look, I just want to do a little exercise. After I identified myself as, quote, soft, a video started playing that promised to give me results if I just followed this program. Hey there. Okay, so you are falling into the soft category. Which Vince Sant, the founder, was in the video. And the thing that struck me was how often he referenced feeling proud about the way you look. After helping thousands of women shed off that soft outer layer 
and replace it with something that they're actually proud of by changing their bodies from simply something they're embarrassed by to something that they're proud to show off was actually a lot easier than you'd think. All they wanted was to be able to drop that number on the scale, keep it off for good, and just be proud of the way they look in the mirror. It all felt a little predatory. There were images of thin, flat-stomached, happy women, and also images of upset, also thin women holding a little bit of fat in their midsections, looking completely exasperated. And in between these images, he kept going back to being proud of the way you look, as though being soft was something to be ashamed of. When someone is so desperate to be in a different body in order to be socially accepted, a lot of people feel like, when I lose this weight, I'm going to be happier. I'm going to have more confidence. Then you start turning to food to feel all this um, unhappiness for you. Like, I'm going to control my life by not eating this. And then you do it for eight weeks or you do a detox for eight weeks. And it's just like, what happens after that? There's a 95% chance that after you do one of these crash diets and lose all the weight, that you're going to regain the weight you lost plus more. Having celebrities, cartoons, and dubious online personal trainers body shame you is one thing. But a lot of people on the internet claim to just be normal folks like you and me who changed one little thing in their diet that changed their whole life. I'm almost 50 pounds down and I'm gonna show you guys what I eat in a calorie deficit. I lost over 100 pounds, and I'm going to share with you guys exactly what I ate on my diet that allowed me to lose 100 pounds in only four months. I intermittent fasted and also cut out sugar and carbs, but more specifically, I ate only one meal a day. Hey guys, so today I'm going to show you what 1,200 calories looks like. There was this one thing on TikTok that was so incredibly viral and we still talk about it in like most of my sessions with my patients is that, you know, you only need 1,200 calories a day. Honestly, this one breaks my heart because I work with a lot of adolescents, actually, and I don't know what's going on on TikTok, but the what I eat in a days are really encouraging severe anorexia. Like I have patients that are 13, 14 years old that are 30 pounds underweight because of stuff that they saw on TikTok. Netflix shows like Too Hot to Handle and all of this, like everybody has to be like hot and fit and thin. And then the Fit Fam, oh my gosh. There are all these fitness groups like the Fit Fam on IG that have these collective goals that can sometimes feel like a cult. I could go on a tangent about Fit Fam on Instagram and all of these like $20 meal plans that they're selling you. <laughs> Eat cucumbers and watermelon for dinner and drink some water and go to sleep. Come on. The diet industry is worth a lot of money. The apps, the diet plans, and yes, the Instagram and YouTube fitness programs. You know, the diet industry is a billion-dollar industry. A more than $200 billion industry. Because diets don't work, they're going to shame you for not being able to follow that diet, sell you another diet, you're going to fail, sell you another diet. Of course, people choose to follow these accounts and buy these 30-day weight loss programs. But when we've been conditioned to be fat-phobic and then inundated with propaganda about losing weight, it can be hard to resist someone on your timeline promising to help you obtain the body you've been told you should have. But a lot of these programs do encourage an unhealthy relationship with food and exercise. And Patience says it can be hard for a lot of people to recognize disordered eating in their own habits, especially when they don't look the part. 
When I was a preteen and teen, there were a lot of campaigns that aimed to raise awareness around specific eating disorders. And the face of those disorders was usually a thin white woman. That left a lot of people out. People who aren't thin, people who don't identify as women, and a lot of black and brown women too. People don't recognize their eating disorders because they don't fit like this very sick, like frail, thin blonde woman that's being blown off in the wind kind of thing. And what I always say is like, life isn't a movie, you know, like a lot of us do have eating issues. And because mental health is kind of still a stigma in the African-American community, we minimize it or brush it aside or say, you know, there's bigger fish to fry. The relationship a lot of Black women have with their bodies is complicated from an early age. A lot of African-American women grow up curvy. You know, I had a client that was telling me that her mom put a girdle on her when she was like eight because she had hips. I've talked with so many Black women who felt like after puberty, their bodies became something to be policed or controlled. I remember the dress codes in school that banned spaghetti straps and shorts that didn't reach mid-thigh. But it always seemed like it was the curvy Black girls who were getting in trouble for violating the rules. Even into adulthood, every few years, there's some story about a Black teacher or Black news anchor whose clothing is deemed inappropriate. Usually, the outfit is fine. It's the woman's body the critics have a problem with. Like, our bodies are so despised, or were, until Kim Kardashian, right? African-American women have historically been taught to be ashamed of our bodies. So whenever it hits for you, I think that's when you start to associate eating with body type, you know, even though it's inaccurate. For Black women, maintaining the line between having the right body type and being fat can be nearly impossible. You're taught to embrace your curves as long as it's the right curves and they're in the right places. And when you do try to lose weight, you're told not to get too skinny. It can all be really confusing and cause people to not want to think about their bodies at all. Now, this is not to say that every Black woman's experience is a monolith or that other women who aren't Black haven't experienced similar things. In fact, most of us are getting really confusing messages about our weight and health because the very way we measure obesity is flawed. Body mass index, or BMI, is a measure of a person's body fat that uses their height and weight. You probably heard a doctor or someone reference having a good BMI. That's the range that's deemed acceptable before you fall into the overweight or underweight categories. The thing about BMI is that it wasn't developed as a way to measure an individual person's health. The guy who popularized it in the 70s, who notably was not a doctor, figured it could be used to predict outcomes for whole populations. And the metric was developed by studying only white European men. So BMI doesn't account for sex, body composition, like fat to muscle ratio, bone density, age, nothing. <laughs> like, it's just like this random number. But despite BMI's dubious origins, it's still used a lot in the healthcare field. Patient says she's come across it in her work as a dietitian. I used to work in a hospital. And I came across this issue a lot. Like, somebody would come in, be extremely obese, like, fall into that category. Perfect labs, perfect health. Maybe they have, like, a broken finger or something like that. But because of one thing or another, I, the dietitian, had to go see them. And I don't have anything to write about them in their chart, but I have to see them. So what do I do? Am I going to say that the diagnosis is obesity? Am I going to get in trouble for not acknowledging the high BMI and giving this patient 
education about weight loss and stuff like that. Because that's what we're trained to do. Like, oh, your BMI is this. You're at risk for X, Y, and Z. And here's some pamphlets and go lose weight. Even though this person is perfectly fine from everything I could tell biochemically. So it's part of the institution of the medical field from what I have seen and my experience and all of my studies. A lot of people who do fall into the overweight, obese category don't want to go seek medical help because they don't want to have a lecture about how to lose weight when they came in for their eyesight. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to talk to you about weight. Like, I'm fine in my body. I've been doing a lot of work. I don't need anyone telling me that I need to lose weight. Doctors or medical professionals feel like we have to say something about it, even if it's not necessary or helpful. And when you're constantly told that you should lose weight, you might turn anywhere for help, even Instagram. Everybody that has a six-pack is a credible fitness instructor and nutrition coach. (laughs) So that is toxic within itself. None of these people have studied physiology or how the body works with exercise. None of these people know anything about food and what kinds of food you need. I mean, a lot of them do Google stuff to their credit, (laughs) but there's a lot, there's a lot more to it than Google. There's a lot of information on the internet that if you don't have the proper um, educational background, you're not going to be able to sift through effectively or intelligently. So there's a lot of just misinformation. Like most of what I do, like eight hours a day is just myth busting. So let's bust some myths. And it's going to be hard work because it turns out changing our ideas about food isn't easy. When I was in school, one thing they always said is to get people to change their diet is harder than getting them to change their religion. Because a lot of these views are so dogmatic and ingrained. It's just like, this is what I believe to be true. But we're here to do the work and maybe arm ourselves so we don't fall prey to all these Instagram and TikTok videos. Myth number one that drives patients nuts, detoxing. Like the fact that it exists at all. That is a huge myth that you can drink something, be pure. I don't even know. They don't even tell you what the toxins are, that they're detoxing out of your body. And if we had toxins in our body, probably wouldn't be alive, right? So I I just don't know what that means. Number two, carbs are bad. And I know we've all heard this one. I hate that one so much. A lot of people don't even realize that fruits and vegetables are carbohydrates. And patient says people get way too hung up on good versus bad foods. Your body is going to break down everything into recognizable chemicals that your body can absorb. Right. So it's not going to say not only did she eat Oreo, but she ate that 10 p.m. Let's convert this into a love handle. No, like your body is going to digest and process all foods in the way that it knows how to, regardless of what that item is. Now, does that mean that all you need to do is eat Oreos all day long? No, too much of anything is bad. You have to find the balance there. Myth number three, you should think about food as nothing but fuel. I actually came across this one myself, so I brought it up. I was on Instagram the other day, and I saw this post from this, like, fitness person that I follow, that I no longer follow, actually, after this. And basically what he was saying was, like, when people come to him and, like, they want to lose weight, but the issue is eating, he tells them the first thing you need to start with is the way you think about food. And you need to divorce pleasure from food. Because we need to think of food as fuel. And as soon as you change your thinking and think of it as like just fuel to power my body, then your relationship will change with food and you can eat more healthy and you'll reach your goals or whatever. I feel like that's something that you hear often in dieting and fitness communities. 
weigh in on that. What do you think about that? I agree with him on one point that if you think of food as fuel and not pleasure, you will change your relationship with food and it will be for the worse. It will definitely be for the worse. Why do we have taste buds? That food is not supposed to be enjoyable. Why does cake exist? Like, why do we actually have dopamine released when we eat food that we enjoy? Culturally, food is like a social thing. We gather for parties. It's celebratory. Our bodies are made to enjoy eating. And that's why people cook and go to chef school. And yes, food does provide us with energy, but it also provides us with enjoyment. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. It's called balance, sir. So is there an okay way to diet? Patient says she tells people to look at the big picture. Everything you eat, like your normal eating pattern is called a diet, right? I think that society has taken that word and turned it into restriction and eating less. Eating should be fun. I think if you're eating a balanced meal, you're able to like incorporate things that you love. Like I personally love desserts. Part of my diet, quote unquote, is have dessert every night. When you start to deprive yourself of the pleasure from eating or the enjoyment from food, that's when the toxicity begins. I think diet culture has made us feel like we can intellectualize how hungry we are and decide this is what I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop eating at this amount of calories or I'm going to stop eating like with this portion. You cannot trick your brain from wanting to keep you alive. Like our body does not know about hashtag summer body 2022. Doesn't know about wanting to get a six pack by the end of the year. Your body only knows like feast and famine and survival. So. If you're trying to restrict yourself all the way down to a very small portion, it doesn't work. I still wanted to ask her, though, is it okay to want to change your body, to look in the mirror and want to change something about your appearance? And if so, how do you look out for yourself to make sure that it's not prompted by unrealistic beauty ideals and to make sure you're not developing an unhealthy relationship with food? I think it's okay to want to change your body. I think that there should be some sort of balance. This all-or-nothing approach with diet and exercise I think is wrong. I don't think that you should be sedentary and just not care about your food intake at all. And I don't think that you should be obsessed with eating and working out. So it's not what you're doing, it's more so why you're doing it. If you're doing it because it's this unhealthy obsession and it's coming out of pure hate for yourself, then that's something to be looked at. But if it's because you love yourself and you want to increase the length of your life and you want to give your body a good mix of vitamins and protein and carbs and, you know, you want to be very intentional about feeling your best, you can ask yourself and then you have to obviously be honest with yourself. Just question it. Like, is it better to rest or is it better to work out and why? Question your goal for working out to begin with. Is it to be in a smaller body? Is your desire to lose weight fat phobic for yourself? Question your food choices. Are you getting the cauliflower rice because you like it? Because it tastes good? (laughs) Or like I saw cauliflower jollof, you know, I'm Nigerian. I'm just like, really? Like, why are we doing that? (laughs) Like, is it because it tastes better? Question some of your routines. Question the reason that you're doing certain things. I always say that health is not just about weight or body size. It's about relationships. It's your relationship with food. It's your relationship with exercise, your relationship with sleep, your family, your friends, your mental health, your relationship with social media. You know, (laughs) like it's all about relationships. 
it shouldn't be reduced to like a number on the scale or your pant size. That's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. I work with a very supportive and talented team to make it every week. The show's producer is Alicia Key. We have production help from Blake Lou Merwin. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer, and he had help this week from Ellie McAfee-Hahn. Graylin Brashear is our senior director of audio. Big thanks to Patience Owane for talking to me this week. We'll have a link to some of our writing in the show notes. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. <laughs>